This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Pallas Shaw, and Bernadine Dorn, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the artist and freedom fighter Tom Morello with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tommy's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up wherever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. And that was the voice of Bernadine Dorn. Bernadine is sitting side by side with me this this episode. We are quarantined. We both have COVID, and we're doing pretty well. Um, but it's good to have you here, and thanks for joining. It's a pleasure to be on your program. You know, I don't want to say at long last. I think I was once before. But oh, wait, you were a guest. You were a I featured was... guest early on. <laughs> exactly. And that was when nepotism was the whole name of the game. <laughs> um, I had you, I had Chase, I had Zaid, I had Kathy. It got ridiculous. Thanks um, for the opportunity, Bill. You bet. Anyway, um, you just introduced Tom Morello, and of course, you've known Tom for a long, long time. You are old friends. We're old friends, Tom. Uh pursued us when he was still with the original Rage Against the Machine. He's a Chicago guy, and he knows Chicago history, and was a friend of uh, the Weather Underground and a fan of mine. Yeah, Tom um, came looking for you. He came to your office. Uh, he did, and of course, once we met him, we we uh, we it was love at first sight. A fabulous young man, uh, and uh really determined to uh, use his art and his music and his audience to help build the struggle for freedom and justice. And then you became very close to his mother, Mary Morello, and she's one of your best friends. <laughs> that was a wonderful part of it. Wherever Tommy went and if for decades, you know, till into her 90s, Mary Morello, who raised Tommy single-handedly and the, not single-handedly, who raised Tommy on a, in a north suburb, Libertyville of Chicago. Um, and I became best buddies, and we went to concert, his concerts and singing together and sat up, <laughs> into the, sat up in the audience at Tom's concerts together. Quite a relationship. I'm so glad to know him, to know his kids, to know his partner. And Mary. And, and Mary's the best, yeah. Um, and he always... Treats her as the best. Yeah, um, and Mary and Tom call every month, every few weeks, maybe every other week, to check in and see what's happening around the world. So thanks for introducing Tom, and thanks for being here. Our next stop, typically, is a land acknowledgement. And so I'm going to do that, Bernadine. We, we always announce that we're broadcasting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, stolen lands stewarded by many peoples and lineages for millennia, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwa, and the Odawa, dozens more indigenous nations. You know, one of the things I worry about with land acknowledgments is that they can become pro forma. That is, they can become a performance and virtue signaling and not much more. But in our case... And I hope in the case of those who are listening, we think of ourselves as justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists. And so while we acknowledge the original peoples, 
We remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide. But our main job is to pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in a struggle for repair, justice, joy, balance, and love. We also note every week that we're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on folks to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited, struggling toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. So we ask these kinds of questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These are good questions that animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. Yeah, I mean, I think they are good questions, but I think it's important to remember that they're not questions that have fill-in-the-blank answers. They're questions that have to be reflected upon, considered, and then brought to life through action. Anyway, our first traditional feature after all that is the quiet contemplation of a poem, our moment of Zen. And today's poem is There But For Fortune by our beloved, long-gone Phil Oaks. And I'm going to ask Bernadine to begin to read this poem. Show me the prison, show me the jail. Show me the prisoner whose life has gone stale, and I'll show you a young man with so many reasons why, there but for fortune, go you or I. Thank you, Bernadine. That was the great Phil Oaks composition, There But For Fortune. And that version was sung by the transcendent Joan Baez. 
Our second regular feature is a free write. So pause the podcast for just a minute and write wildly. No need for edits or revisions in response to this prompt. What's the worst thing you ever did in your life? Okay, stop blushing and be honest. Are you sure you haven't repressed, suppressed, or forgotten the most unkind or terrible or illegal or unjust things you've done? Think harder. What were the consequences of your actions for others? And what were the consequences for yourself? Okay, start writing, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. I'm flooded with thoughts, Bill, about the worst thing I ever did. I'm keeping it to myself. Good, but you often use a prompt like this in your teaching. I do. What's the version you use? When I taught uh, criminal law and criminal justice and human rights law at Northwestern Law School, uh, so I'm sitting with a room full of 30, 25 uh, law students, and I go around and demand that everybody explain how they broke the law. Uh, themselves. This is not something law students want to talk about or is encouraged really in law schools. But I think it's important that the what they're the field that they're going into to be lawyers um, is is important to recognize that their own youth and their own history includes violations of the law and in another situation might have escalated to become very serious charges. So we'd go around the room and I would nudge people, okay, if you never did it, you never broke the law, which I find hard to believe. Let's just say maybe one of your best friends did, and that would open people up. We'd go around the room and the the things, <laughs> the, the examples of, um, breaking the law and also a worse thing, hurting somebody uh, and not owning up uh, and not trying to repair the hurt uh, would come pouring out. And when somebody told the truth, it was easier for the next person to tell the truth. And we vowed that we would keep it in the room. I think the important thing about that is that people like to think of themselves as good, basically good, basically law-abiding. And... um, and yet once you pushed people, did they drink underage? Did they take their mother's car illegally? Did they drive without a license? Did they shoplift? Did they smoke a joint? Turns out everyone in the room broke the law. And the consequences for these upper middle class kids typically was not serious. Uh, in a different context, in a different neighborhood, in a different reality, it would have had a quite different outcome. And there's two different ways, Bill. I'm just interrupting you for one minute. One is silence when you should have spoken up. We talked a lot about that in this class. And the other is, you know, saying, uh, you know, breaking the law and knowing you were doing it and doing it gleefully or secretly uh, and that that strategies. But both of these things, the silence, not speaking up when somebody is hurting somebody else, that's a big one. Our next regular feature is Authors, Artists, Activists After Hours. And today we're so fortunate to be joined by Michael Fisher, who teaches for the Odyssey Project, a free college credit program for income-eligible adults. 
He's a Luminarts Cultural Foundation Fellow, Illinois Arts Council grantee, finalist for the Pan America Writing for Justice Fellowship, and was cited in Best American Essays 2019. His nonfiction appears at the New York Times, Salon, The Sun, Orion, Guernica, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. And I asked you to come and talk to us because I'm a great admirer of your writing, and um, I've read a lot of it, but two pieces really made me want to talk to you about freedom. And one was uh, a piece you wrote called There But For Grace, and the other one was about violence and nonviolence. So maybe we'll start there and cover as much ground as, as we'd like. But your, your first, the first piece I'd like to talk about is called There But For The, for the Grace, and it begins with a very compelling story of you doing a reading at a gathering in Southern Vermont, the kind of activity that writers do all the time. So you were at this reading, and maybe you tell that story. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so this was at an artist residency, kind of the capstone of the residency. Everybody gets together and share their work with the community. And so we gathered in this big barn, and, and everyone's uh, you know reading, showing artwork that they've been working on, different things. And I went up and I read um, an excerpt from a, a memoir manuscript that I was working on at the time. And in the in the excerpt, I, I am in prison as a character, but it's in narrative time, we're splitting time between me in prison in this shower, just kind of with the water rolling off of me. And then, you know, however many thousand miles away, meanwhile, uh, my aunt is dying of, of cancer. And so it's kind of this split screen moment in the narrative. And uh, it was really hard to write. It was really hard to read. And basically ends with her dying. And and then when the piece was over, they had a QA. And first person to raise their hand shoots his hand up immediately. And his question is, What were you in prison for? And I think if I'd been reading a different piece, maybe it wouldn't have bothered me so much. But I think because it was about my aunt and because uh it still, you know, it hurts me that I wasn't there when she died because I was locked up, that something about the question bothered me more than usual. Cause it's not like it's the first time I'd heard it, but it really bothered me in that context. And I said to him, if you can tell me how that has anything to do with what I just read, then I'll tell you all about it. Mm. And the crowd loved that. They were like, oh, that's so true. Um, but he wasn't really satisfied with that. And he actually came up to me afterward at the like, you know, kind of hors d'oeuvres after thing and said, uh, and he was really nice. And he said, oh, you know, I just want you to know, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, I wasn't trying to be, you know, aggressive or anything. Like, you know, I actually have a really good friend who like does a lot of you know, donates a lot of, you know, to reentry projects and stuff. And he, he was like, he wanted credit for the fact that he knew somebody that, right. that did something. Right. Um, and I just kind of said, oh, wow, wow, great, good. Because I, I knew clearly he just wanted the credit. And and, and I just kind of wanted to be done with the conversation. So I, I kind of gave him what he wanted, which was to say like, oh, wow, good for, good for you. Um, and in the essay, it kind of opens up this whole question of why exactly is it that people who don't know you think they have a right to every piece of personal information about anything you've ever done in your life, especially uh, what you were in prison for, even when it's not relevant to anything that you're saying. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that's kind of where the essay goes from there. Sure. And why, why is it, why do you think it is that people are, it, 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 when you, when I read the opening of this piece, I thought, yeah, that's such a natural thing. Why were you in prison? That, I mean, and you've heard it a thousand times. So, so, but but why is that such a a knee jerk kind of response when anybody learns that you did time? Why is that what they want to know? I think it's my guess would be two things. I think one is the kind of basic everyday one is um, I think people honestly in a lot of 
context think they're doing you a favor the same way that people think they're doing you a favor when they ask you like what your tattoos mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed, I remember that too. Like, I remember when I first started getting tattoos and people would almost like, you could almost see it in their face. They're like, okay, I'll bite. Tell me about your tattoo. And I'm like, I don't, you're not doing me a favor right now. Like I don't give a shit if, what you say, but like, I, I didn't get this for you. But, but I could tell they really thought that this was like clearly why I got in it. And I was really like, you know, just waiting for someone to, to ask. Mm-hmm. And I think similarly, people have a misconception from, you know, TV and movies that like, this is how it goes. That like guy sits down on the bunk and the guy in the top bunk rolls over and goes, Hey man, what are you in prison for? Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, um, little do people realize that's actually in most, I mean, obviously it d- depends on what prison you're in, but in most prisons, that's a completely verboten question. You never ask somebody why they were in because the implication when you ask that question is that they were in for something uh, that's really looked down upon. It's like, you know, uh, basically you're saying to somebody like, are you a child molester? Like there's, yeah. there's very clear right. crimes you're, you're intimating when you ask somebody what they're in for, because the assumption is everyone's pretty much in for whatever. And it's not a big deal. So if somebody's asking that question in a prison, it's actually a really big deal and it's a pretty big threat. But I think on the outside, there's this misconception that it's not, that it's like, this is just, oh, it's what they do with the movies. So um, I think that's one thing is like people genuinely don't see the harm because they've seen it on TV and they think it's fine. Um, I think the second deeper reason, the unconscious reason, is it's just a testament to kind of the pervasive power of the state that people feel so invested with the state's right to um, just put you on a billboard that it doesn't occur to them that they're violating your privacy because they're like, well, what do you mean privacy? You're, you're a convict. Like I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a law abiding citizen. You're a convict. The state has vested me with the power to question you in whatever way that I want. And of course no one would ever say it that way, but that's, that's the assumption under which they're acting. Um, and so I think even though, yeah, people, that's not one people are thinking of, but I think, I think that's the deeper thing is that people are vested with that power that the state has given us to ridicule each other, to judge each other, um, to hurt each other, uh, in this kind of, uh, legal and extra legal, these type of legal and extra legal ways. And I, I imagine this is even true of people who are critical of mass incarceration or critical of the carceral state, that there's still this sense that, well, if you're in prison, you did something, what did you do? I mean, is that, do you think that's true? Yeah. And I think, I mean, liberals, good liberals. Yeah. Oh, no, it gets really complicated. It gets way, it's most complicated with liberals mm-hmm. for that exact reason. The, not just a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about applying for a job with a very progressive organization that does prison outreach work with incarcerated people here in the city. Mm. They had a big job posted as like six figure job and be like double my salary. And I'm like, oh, that'd be great for this. And um, I applied for it. And they said, uh, at some point there, they sent me some form. They're like, here, give us your show. She'll give us your thing and run a background check. And I said, no, I don't do, I don't do background checks. Uh, it's like, it's like being given a test. You know, you're going to fail. It's like, why are we doing a background check? I told you I'm a felon. Like I, there's nothing more to say about it. Right. Um, I just, you know, I get that it's part of the process. It's part of a lot of people's employment, you know, process, but I, I just wasn't willing to do it. God, that's infuriating. So and they, but what's crazy about it is that they were not understanding at all. They pressed and they pressed and they pressured me and they sent emails and they called. They had n- nowhere along the way that anyone say like, I understand, or that makes sense. These are people that work in prison outreach. God damn. Work with system impacted people. And they were like, I was basically like annoying them that they, that I was like coming up with this ridiculous, like, I think one of them called me and she left me a voicemail and she was like, yeah, I heard you're like, what did she say? I heard you're like offended or whatever, but you know, something very dismissive yeah. by the background. And I'm like, what are you offended or whatever? Who the fuck yeah. are you? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, you're right. It, it's actually wor- it, a lot of times it's worse with liberals because they feel like, oh, I'm on your side. Why won't you level with me? And I'm like, yeah. I don't work like that's not how it works. Wow. And that is really a terrifying story. But I, I wonder also in with liberals, with everybody, if there isn't a kind of sense of 
of nailing you to the board like a butterfly by asking that question and feeling superior, even if it's not conscious, even if it's just unconscious, that I'm kind of on a morally higher ground, but I'm also sympathetic. I'm a nice person. I'm not, I'm glad you're not in prison. Don't you think there's a kind of moral, moral test there that, that people, when they ask that question, are kind of giving, issuing? Yeah, I do. I, I think, I th- yeah, I think it's, a, um, especially among liberals, I think in some ways it's a kind of a weird backward attempt at it's both it's both a pushing away and a drawing closer at the same time it's a pushing away in the ways that you're articulating but it's also like a a, a pulling in in the sense that like they're trying to again they're trying oh we're on the same team level with me it's like this idea that we're in this together it's like it's our secret whatever so so they're both trying to like you know show that we're all in the same fold but then also completely isolate you and i think and i think also um to me, that the question is—it's a form of, of kind of like trauma voyeurism. The same way people, yeah. um, the same way that white liberals love to uh, ask these same questions uh, about black pain. You know, oh, yeah. tell us about your absent father. Oh, tell yeah. us about your yeah, 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 mother. Yeah. People, you know, white people, white liberals love those stories. Yeah. Um, and black and you know, black and, and brown populations are supposed to trot these stories out um, because it's what funders want to hear about. It's what white people want to hear about to make themselves feel better. Um, and so I think it's a lot about that. It's like, yes, moral high ground, but also like, give me what I need to feel, to feel good about myself, to feel good about, uh, the fact that I'm helping you. I need to know, um, what a loser you are so that when I help you, I am vested with the, uh, the moral integrity of a person who helps losers, but I can't do that until you're a loser. So prove to me that you are, and then we can move forward. Wow. That is really a convoluted (laughs) process, isn't it? It's a very weird journey. You also, in this essay, um, bring your mother into it and your mother in her youth and and your mother uh, more contemporarily. But you do that partly to talk about guilt and innocence and what are we what are we all guilty of? You know, when I worked in the juvenile detention center and I wrote a book about it and I went out speaking, and there was a lot of what you're describing in the in the book talks. Um, but I remember saying to people, What's the worst thing you ever did? And then I'd say, I, I see a lot of people blushing, and I'm not going to ask you to tell me. But you did not suffer for the worst thing you ever did, and you recovered from it. And it may have been nasty, but here you are. And that's one of the things you explore in this essay is, what are the worst things we ever did? And, and what is being held to account by the state? And what what worst things get get brought into the criminal legal system and what don't. I think at one point you say, people also want to assume that what I went to prison for is the worst thing I ever did, but it's not the worst thing I ever did. I found that a wonderful, intriguing kind of comment. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's one of my favorite parts of the essay, because to me, that's really the linchpin is, I think, uh, of the many misconceptions people have about prison. One of them is this idea that, oh, well, yeah, probably what you went to prison for if you did a, you know, a, a you know, a felony sentence was was the worst thing you ever did. And I'm not even sure what I went to prison for. I don't think I'd even put a top five. I'm not even sure I'd put a top 10. And my point in saying that to people is not to like mock or 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 uh, minimize the situation. It's it's to it's to really take seriously that um yeah that f- harm takes a lot of forms and most of them are legal. Uh or at the very least uh we all get away with most of them on a daily basis whether they're legal or not. And so yeah that was my point in saying that in the essay when I say you know I didn't go to prison for the worst thing I ever did. Um, I mean, yeah, there are things I, I would take back in a heartbeat so much sooner than, than everything I went to prison for, which I also feel terrible about. But, um, 
but yeah, harm harm is not that simple. It's not it's not it's not that perfect of a science. It's not a it's not a one to one. Um, and I, and I brought my mom into the essay because I really wanted to use my family as an example of this idea of moral luck. You know, people talk about. Uh, well, I'll just use an example from the essay, which is that my mom had you know used to tell me when I was younger. Every once in a while, she'd mention that she used to back in the 70, back in when you could do things like this and nothing happened, um, she used to drive drunk, like basically as a sport. Like she would go out on purpose and she would run every red light through the main street of her town just to kind of see what would happen. And of course, nothing happened because she was like a blonde white woman in the 70s. But um, so in a parallel universe, she does that exact same thing, except she hits somebody in the crosswalk and she kills them. Mm-hmm. And in that parallel universe, she's in prison for manslaughter or murder or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um in this universe, nothing happened and she's fine and she has no record. And I think we all recognize on some level that the difference between those two universes is only luck. Like she only, she didn't not hit that person in the crosswalk because she was doing a good job driving or because she's a good person. She didn't hit them in the crosswalk because they didn't happen to be there. Mm-hmm. But that is just her getting lucky. And so we end up in this weird moral quandary when we talk about moral luck, about the fact that we know that we can't lock her up in this universe for having not hit someone because you can't lock someone up for the crime they didn't commit. But we also have this nagging sense that we know that it's wrong, that the only reason she's in prison in that other universe and she's not in prison in this one is because someone didn't happen to be in the crosswalk. And so you can extrapolate that out to basically the entire criminal justice system. And so that's the point I'm trying to make partly in the piece is that the difference between people that are incarcerated and the people that are not, it's not that people in prison did something wrong and people that aren't in prison didn't. It's that the people in prison got caught. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, Hunter S. Thompson has one of my favorite lines ever in a, in a society in which everyone is guilty. The only crime is getting caught. That's very good. And yeah. that's, that's so true. I mean, I, I, and not only have I, not only did I not go to prison for the worst thing I ever did, I've done a million things that were illegal that I didn't go to prison for because I didn't get caught. Right. And again, I'm not a better person because I didn't get caught for them, but I could have. And then I'd have 40 felonies and then I'd be a really bad guy. Right. What's the difference between that really bad guy and the one sitting here? That one got caught a, right. a, a little more often and, and, that, and, and is slightly less lucky than I am. It has nothing to do with the relative moral integrity. You know, for some people remember the Bill Clinton you know, impeachment and all that. But one of the things that struck me then was if if the power of the state were brought down on any human being, Bill Clinton to the to the least wise of the land, if the entire power of the legal system was brought down to look at you and say, did you do something wrong? Everyone would be guilty. Everyone would be impeached. And that's something that struck me reading your essay, you know, that, that it's just true that, that, Everybody does things, and only some things are counted as illegal, but only some people are caught for some things some of the time. And that's when you get into things that we've talked about before about, you know, if you if an entire community is locked up and criminalized, that is, if the entire community is assumed to be criminal, then you have situations like in Memphis where people are sweeping in for the most chicken shit misdemeanor nonsense and people die because everyone's assumed to be a criminal. Yeah. And as I say about Clinton, if you brought the power of the state on any individual, you'd find something they did that was messed up at, at the very least. But that's what is so disturbing about these serial killings of black youth and black young men and women. But is it if the entire community is criminalized, then they're fuck-ups, mistakes, tiny little errors, 
you know, I often think about the fact that I was coming back from Ohio a few years ago and I was going through some little backwater town and I got pulled over and I thought, oh shit, what's wrong? What happened? And the cop comes up to my car and says, sir, your taillight is out. Could mm -hmm. you see to get that fixed? He didn't ask me for my name, my license, my registration. He was doing a service. I got back to the college and my African-American colleague, Dave Stovall, had been stopped that afternoon on the west side, brought out of his car, frisked, put over the hood of his car. He's a professor just like me. He was in a different neighborhood. He's a young African-American guy. I'm an old white guy in Ohio. You know, it's just blows your mind when you think of it that way. And yeah. You see the carnage that that goes on in places like Chicago, Memphis, everywhere. So let's go back to this question of uh of who who goes how do we how do we you, you write at one point, empathy is not the answer when we think about mass incarceration. Talk a little bit about that. If empathy is not the answer, what does that mean? And where do we go to, to figure out how to respond to the mass incarceration world that we live in? Yeah, so that that idea, um, this idea that empathy isn't the answer, uh, I, I stole this whole concept from from uh, a guy named Ruben Miller, uh, teaches at the, the Crown School at UChicago um, in the social work program. And he was a good friend of mine when I was in grad school. He's, he's now since won um, a MacArthur Genius Grant this last year, which we're all very excited about. Uh, but Ruben... Um, has a book out called Halfway Home. He, he he's a research does a lot of research around around people kind of returning from prison and and you know the parole and probation system. And one of the things he points out, a is that uh, empathy is the attempt to to place yourself in another person's position. Um, but because we only all have ever lived within our own positionality, it, it's it's an impossible thought experiment. So what people end up doing when they say that they're empathizing is that they're imagining themselves in this other person's situation, which is totally different than being that other person. So, because as you say, you getting pulled over, you know, imagining yourself in your colleague's position, getting pulled over on the West side, that doesn't do you any good as, as an act of empathy because, um, cause you're not him. Right. So, so I, I think Ruben's point is, is that, um, that that's really actually not the task. I think a lot of people talk about empathy as a buzzword in, in this type of work. And, um, and everyone's like, uh, not quite what he, what he, what he does say though, which I also cite in the essay is that, citizenship is not it's not a legal status it's a social status it's a it's something that's constitutive it's it's uh, it's fluid and we all kind of constitute what it means to be a citizen every day um and especially and, and to be a carceral citizen in whatever form that is whether that's inside or outside of a prison um and so these these pieces are really trying to get at what what does that look like because you can you can knock all the prisons down tomorrow and the attitudes that built them will still be there and so some other some other physical plant will, will take their place um, until you kind of root out the actual attitudes, until you root out, um, and until you get to the heart of the, this issue of citizenship, of, of, of what are we doing, what are each of us doing every day in these little death by a thousand cuts ways to uh, police each other, to judge each other, to, um, you know, create, uh, you know, this, this kind of American caste system that we have. Um, until we can we can get at that kind of more intimate issue, uh, it's not going to matter if you throw all the doors open because they'll, they'll just they'll just think of something else. You know, the same way that we went from the slave catching brigades to police to now the carceral. You know, they'll, they'll just it'll find a different form. I wonder what the next form is. I sometimes ask myself that. You know? Yeah, I mean, but but you know what you're pointing to as a literary person yourself, as an artist yourself. Do you think literature has the power to 
take us outside of our normal narcissism? Does, does is literature a tool for us to understand um, the world? You know that that could be. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I don't know how much. I mean, I, I think I don't think. I mean, I I think this is one of those things that is going to take a thousand little components, and I'm hopeful that you know, literature and, and, and live literature in particular are, are one of them. I say live literature in particular because what I've found, what makes me most hopeful in terms of my writing life, um, isn't so much kind of the writing and you send them off into the ether because you don't, you know, you can't really see what effect it's having. You don't know who's reading it. But the great thing about reading, you know, work in public, uh, when, when it goes well, you know, get asked stupid questions, is that you get to really connect with people and, and, and get their reaction immediately. And I've had so many people that have, uh, you know, people listen to me read very politely and it's like, oh, that's great. And, and in kind of the public forum, no one really says much that's unexpected. But what, but what happens then is that after the event is over, then the people that you'd, you know, quote unquote, least expect sidle up to me on the side and want to tell me about, oh, this was really meaningful because my brother's in prison or my mm-hmm. uncle's in prison or my cousin's in prison or my best friend is in prison. Um, the problem is that because of the shame and the stigma and this Carlsville citizenship, they don't want to say it in front of everybody. They'll, they'll say it right. to me on the side, but they won't say it out you're, loud. Because you're safe in that regard. Right, exactly. You're... I'm safe because I've already planted that flag. Yeah. I've planted yeah. that flag by being here. I've right. planted that flag by, by reading. And so they know they can say it to me. Um, but it, but the fact they can say it at all, because for some people, you can tell it's a real relief. You, you can tell that this is like a, a kind of source of shame for them, or they, it's not something they have anyone to talk to about. You know, this kind of a verboten subject. There's not, I think, a lot of people um, in many folks' lives that can uh, feel like they have an outlet to talk about these kinds of things. And so that's meaningful is when you feel like you can be a sounding board for someone who um, is kind of suffering silently as some kind of peripheral person orbiting this massive carceral state and that they're not alone in that, even in that moment, that feels important. But, you know, can there be enough live lit readings across the nation to, um, you know, for that to really move the needle? Probably not. But it certainly keeps me, um, you know, interested in this type of work. Yeah. You know, I I think you're right. It's going to take a thousand small things, cultural, political, and so on. But I teach ethics on Wednesday nights, and we spend a lot of time talking about the difference between individual virtue and social ethics. And the theme being that most Athenians, most of the time, act like Athenians, and most Spartans, most of the time, act like Spartans. And most Americans, most of the time, act like Americans. So we raise questions about the toxic individualism of our society, about the narcissism of human life. And we talk about these things quite a lot. And, you know, you raise the question, um, for example, could, you know, people, when you ask, are you an ethical person and what's the evidence? The evidence is almost always individual. I gave a guy a dollar outside Starbucks. Um, I'm kind to my partner and on and on. And then you begin to ask the question, could someone who paid his bills and gave the charity and was kind to his partner and never beat the children, never beat anyone, uh, but owned slaves, could that person be an ethical person? And the answers just divide all over the place. You know, people love to say, for example, well, that was then, you know, I mean, Thomas Jefferson lived when slavery was, yeah, except there was an anti-slavery movement and there was a, and he even accounted in his own writings for how, what a bunch of hypocr- hypocritical 
horror it was that he was writing this brilliant. And then the question for my class is, can you hold in your mind two ideas at the same time? That Thomas Jefferson wrote brilliant, brilliant uh, essays about democracy and the meaning of human rights and so on, and at the same time owned people whom he routinely raped. Can you hold that in your mind? And most people can't. Most people say, you've ruined Thomas Jefferson for me. But but I think that that's, you know, that that notion of social ethics is also provides us a, a pathway in the sense that most people during the days of slavery, acting conventionally, were acting in a nightmare. When slavery was abolished, acting conventionally allowed most people most of the time to be not being the worst, right? But we all participate in the systems we live in. So most Americans act like Americans. You and I would both acknowledge that we live in a carceral society. In fact, I don't know if you saw the review about the the oral history of Rikers in last Sunday's New York Times. Mm. There's an oral history done of Rikers Island, but what, there are many things that stood out for me. And two to just mention to you, one was that um, the opening chapter is, is the first day. And again and again, people say the worst thing was the feeling that nobody saw us, that we were invisible, that we had been erased, that we were gone. And that was such a chilling reminder of something very true to my experience. And then the second thing, Fat Boy, the rapper, said um, early on in the book, he said, uh, I was, when I came to Rikers, I felt like I'd come home. Hmm. I felt I was born in Rikers. It looked exactly like the public school. Hmm. It looked exactly like the housing project. I said, they have the same architect for the school, the housing, and the prison. And I thought that was a very material way of talking about the school-to-prison pipeline. If, if the architect is the same, the same color scheme, the same you know, physical arrangement, wow. So I, I think that, that it's important to say that, yes, a thousand things need to be done, a million things, and also the fight socially to get rid of the incarceration, to, to fight for... I'll say it, I mean, to fight for the abolition of prisons. Um, and and I think of that as many of us do, as world building, not unlocking a door. Because as you say, you can unlock the door and the criminalization of black people and the et cetera, et cetera, is all still in place. And the idea of punishment and the idea that the best way to deal with these things. So I don't know, I'd be interested in in what other things, when we talk about a million things and we talk about the social versus the individual, what else comes to your mind? Oh, man. Most of what comes to my mind is is um, the kind of everyday stuff around, like, you know, local services, you know, um, when people talk about, because uh, I, I, when people, I understand when, when folks say, oh, well, you know, if there's no police, then who do we call? It's like, well, yes, no, if there was no one to call, I mean, it's, 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 it's I always think of Daniel Sarad's, um, I always think of Daniel Sarad's analogy about, uh, it's some, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, um, you know, there's, there's one like shitty fast food restaurant in the middle of the desert and people are eating there because it's the only restaurant in the desert. And someone comes up to them and says, well, how could you possibly, you know, eat here? I thought you wanted to abolish such, you know, fast food restaurants. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, there's nothing else here. It's either eat at the fast food restaurant or I'm going to starve. And, and obviously we're, we're up against the same thing with, with um, the carceral state and, and the prison population. I, I get that people, the first question when you say, oh, you know, no more police is, is, Oh, who we call. Um, so I get that people need 
needs something. Um, and I think that's the biggest misconception people have about abolition is that it's not it's not a subtraction, it's a substitution. You're not taking something away and leaving nothing. It's actually even not even a substitution. It's a building project. It's a creation project. So one of the things we're experiencing a um, mayoral race in Chicago mm -hmm. right now and driving me nuts, um, but you know, for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that is nuts about it is almost every candidate says we need more police, yeah. certainly the leading candidates. And when we talk about safety, it devolves to the question of police. And when my friend and progressive candidate, Chuy Garcia, says, says I'll put more cops on the street, I want to say to him, I can't think of a single challenge or problem that Chicago is facing that a thousand more police would be the answer to. There are a lot of answers, but a thousand more police isn't the answer. And when people say, and then people say, and I hear this all the time, that that the communities themselves want them. I think that's false advertising. I think the communities themselves want safety. And then if we all we can do is go to the default crime, police, prison, if that's all we have. So I think you're right, substitution or creation. Um but that's not all we have. And I can think of, so I want people to think of a thousand alternatives to calling the police. What would that look like? And I think we need to have that discussion throughout the society, really. Yeah. But I think, I mean, what, what's, what's such a, you know, what's so hard to take about that story is that, um, like we've been saying, I mean, the fact that the, the quote unquote, you know, good candidates, the fact that the, the nice progressive people at that, at that, prison outreach organization that I was, that I was interviewing with the fact that, that even, that even those folks, um, are not on that wavelength just goes to show, you know, how, how far away we are. And yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, that example of, of, of people, um, presenting that false dichotomy of saying that the, the neighborhoods want this they, it is exactly what I'm talking about. This idea yeah. that, oh, well, um, yeah. And to your point, they don't, yes, they want cops if the choices are cops or nothing, but if the choice is safety, that yeah, as you say, that that's what they're actually asking for, and so um, yeah, breaking down this idea that it's this either or, that it's cops or it's nothing. You know, you raised the question of the the uh, metaphor of a fast food restaurant in the desert. It's interesting because I just wrote a piece again on this question of the individual versus the social, and the piece was based on the idea that I can guarantee you that your new year's resolution to lose weight is going to fail. And why is it going to fail? Because it's not an individual problem. And the way the society frames it as you don't have any discipline, you eat too much, you're, you know, or if you're a cereal dieter, you have a psychological problem. But the reality is that the fast food industry spends billions of dollars on sugary drink advertising on you know, highly processed foods, and the the um, Food and Drug Administration budget for health education is a fraction of that. So you end up in this kind of unfair fight, and then you go to a place like the west side of Chicago, where there are no fruits and vegetables in the stores, and where there are fast food restaurants, and the question, exactly the question you raised, are you going to starve? Or go get some chips at the, you're going to get chips because the choice is to starve. Very interesting that you use that as a, as a, uh, an analogy because it's true in every city. Yeah. I, I, well, I've been thinking about this a lot because the essay I'm trying to write now is about the intersection of the carceral state and, and climate change. Mm. And so I've been doing, you know, I, I've always kind of, 
been half listening to the climate stuff, not fully listening because it was too depressing, but I've always been half listening to it's okay, we're doomed, we're screwed, all these things. Here's what you can do. But this was the first time I really turned toward it and like read deeply and nice. and um and kind of systematically. Nice. And the biggest thing I learned, which I I is a, such a tragedy, is that the way in which personal responsibility is used as a as a club basically against people in the carceral state is exactly the same way that it's used in food and also it turns out in climate change. I had no idea that the phrase carbon footprint, that phrase was coined by oil executives at BP. Wow. It wasn't created by some bunch of people saving plastic bags. BP thought up that phrase as a way to guilt individuals and shift that burden onto individuals and make it an individual problem that, well, if you were just recycling more, if you would just lower your carbon footprint while BP is busy ruining the, ruining the world. So this way, or the, another example was that, um, that famous commercial that ran in the I think eighties and nineties of a Native American man walking down a highway. He sees a, a you know litter you know rolling down the highway, and and you see one tear come out of his eye. It's one of the most famous commercials ever. Well, who ran that commercial? That that commercial was put up by again by industry lobbyists. That was not oh. some Greenpeace commercial. So there are ways that I had no idea about in which industry has been. Um, whispering in our ears to make sure that we were the ones that felt guilty for all of these things. And I talk about it in the essay because I got really into trying to like, you know, lower my carbon footprint and like save the world single-handedly at one point when I first got out of prison because I needed some way to raise my self-esteem. And I thought, well, at least I could help the planet. And so I like, I stopped showering. I mean, I, like it got really intense. Like I like, wouldn't, you know, would wait until I had like 10,000 things to do to get in the car because I didn't want to drive because I went away. So doing all these things and then come to find out that like, yeah, that this guilt that I felt for, you know, ruining the planet is the exact same as the guilt that I felt for um, being a felon. Yeah, this idea that it's all me, that it's 100% my right. fault. Right. Um, because that's how I've been conditioned to think. And, and instead of widening it out and saying, yes, there are things I can do and there's responsibility I do have. Um, but I'm living with a system that I can't do anything about. Or maybe you can do something about the system, but if you only do the individual responses... Is that going to do? I mean, my friend Kevin Kumashiro says, you know, they have a drought crisis in California. And so shorter showers, don't flush the toilet, don't water the lawn. Brown lawns are beautiful. 6% of the water usage in California is individual homes. So you can take all the short showers you want, but big ag and big industry are going to tear up your water anyway. So it's just an interesting point you're making. I think it's really important. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny you say that because the, 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 the essay takes place in California during the drought because that's where I was at the time when I was on parole. And yeah, I remember finding out that the state of Cal the, the almond growers in the state of California use more water to grow almonds in one year than the entire city of Los Angeles uses in either, I think either three years or in, in five years, maybe it is. Wow. Something insane like that. And again, it's like, okay, I can stop eating almonds. But on some level, and I can and I can agitate for you know for fewer you know whatever I could get on some kind of ballot initiative about almonds, but yeah, but there's I think having being able to say there's only so much I can do, and I think frankly that's important in this moment where I mean now we're way off on climate, but I think it's important in this climate moment where the people that care about this issue feel so bad about it in such a visceral way that we feel all like personally responsible. I mean, every time I you know run the tap or throw something away, it's like I you know I feel like I'm sticking a pin into into myself yeah. and being able to say you know what like. I got to give myself a break. Like, um, yes, I'm a bad person. Yes, I've done wrong. Yes, I'm a wasteful, you know, first world. 
but like on some, there's got to come a point where, because in, in the essay, I, I say it gets to the point that I'm like, I'm like, you know, borderline suicidal over these things. Yeah. I, I feel like a waste. I feel like a drain. I feel like, because that's what the COs used to tell us. I feel like I'm worth more dead than alive. I'm like, God, if, at least if I was dead, I wouldn't be taking up space. I wouldn't be taking up resources. Um, the self-hatred that the system put into me. You could also compost a garden. But, exactly. <laughs> but, but you just fucked me up instantly because just this morning I bought a big container of almond milk because I don't drink dairy. Yeah, me So I'm a vegan. Yeah. But fuck, I just had got almonds, man. Now you've made a mess. Okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I do know what I'm going to do. The other one that comes to my mind when you describe that Native American ad with the tear, which I remember so vividly, is Smokey the Bear, only you can prevent forest fires. Mm -hmm. That's a lie. And PG&E creates forest fires and global warming. And, you know, the idea that it's an individual thing only. What about building housing tracks in a fire plane? What about climate change? What about, you know, so you could go to the social if you would push yourself to do it. But it's not easy for Americans to say it's a social problem. The, the one other thing I wanted to tell you is that I was listening to this wonderful report on NPR by somebody who was talking about the ocean and the danger of the deep ocean being mined. And she went on and on, and it was so well done. And then the interviewer said, what can I do? What can an individual do? And she rattled off 10 things that you could do. Not one of them was anything close to build a social movement to end this kind of, you know, capitalist world that we're that is eating us. I mean, not one thing pointed in that direction. It was all you could stop eating salmon. You could be mindful of the fact that the ocean isn't infinite. On and on. But it was just you. It wasn't us. And that drives me crazy because I don't think me or you alone can solve it. The question is how do we link arms and where do we aim ourselves, you know? Um so that that's really helpful to me. Really interesting. Um I want to shift gears just a little bit um, talk about two other things. One is the second essay I wanted to ask you about is called On the Language of Nonviolence and the U.S. Criminal Justice System. Maybe you talk a little bit about how that essay begins, because that, again, is a very compelling story. Actually, you, you have a quote right in the beginning, and it says, after serving a state prison sentence for a nonviolent offense, after serving a state prison sentence for a nonviolent offense, dot, dot, dot. And then you say, I've, you've lost count on how many essays, you know, that's been the tagline you put on. Talk a little bit about violence and nonviolence. Yeah. So this essay grew out of um, my kind of life as a struggling writer, basically, in grad school and post-grad school. And kind of the way that the kind of writing game, as it were, teaches you how to navigate it and the things you're supposed to say and the things people want to hear. And it's a lot like the nonprofit industrial complex in that way. It's, you know, everyone, everyone's got their buzzwords, everyone's got the things they want to hear. And I learned very quickly that one way to um, succeed with these, you know, grant applications and fellowships and residencies and all these things that I wanted, because I was trying to, you know, build myself up and, you know, uh, you know, further my own interests was uh, instead of making people have to ask, well, what, you know, what, what is the nature of your offense? Were you violent or not? But just tell them up front it was nonviolent and that'll put them at ease and, you know, things will, and that'll kind of smooth it over. And, uh, and it worked like a charm for years. And I didn't think anything of it. I thought there's no problem with that. I'm just being, you know, mildly more specific. Uh, it's true. Um, what's the big deal? And then I was talking to someone, I can't remember who, but they pointed out that the same way that, you know, a lot of, a lot of us that are, you know, quote unquote guilty, 
have a bit of a bone to pick with the innocence movement because, um, you know, sometimes if not kind of delivered correctly, people that talk about innocence end up uh, kind of intimating that that that's the real problem. If only we could get all the innocent people out, if only we could make enough HBO documentaries to get all the innocent folks out, then we'd be in business and like, maybe we could all go f- do something else. And for the 99% of people in the system that are, you know, that were convicted, uh, you know, not as a massive, um, you know, miscarriage of justice, or I mean, maybe it's still, it can still be a miscarriage of justice, even if you're guilty, but as someone who's not, you know, conventionally thought of as innocent, that that can be really dangerous because that means you lose all your allies once all the innocent folks come home. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was I was doing the exact same thing. I was just back, I, I stepped back one additional step. So yes, I was all for the innocent folks. And, and what I was doing was also making a case for nonviolent folks. But then that's where, where I was implicitly drawing the line, because what I'm basically saying when I put out a grant application and say, oh, you don't have to worry about me, I'm nonviolent. The implication of that is, if I was, that would be a problem. And so if there's a guy behind me, you know, a person behind me who's, whose application, uh, who's, they're getting an application from somebody with a violent offense, I've now helped stigmatize that person. And so I realized the essay is basically me coming to terms with the fact that I wasn't as far on the uh, correct side of this issue as I thought I was. Mm. You know, I, I thought I'm like, oh, here I am. I'm advocating for formerly incarcerated people as a formerly incarcerated person, and um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, it's important to have a voice because people get. To, and and now that's you know true to a degree, but I was also helping to further stigmatize the most stigmatized group right. in the system impacted population purely because it benefited me for five seconds in that moment. Right. And so it's a reckoning with, with, with that kind of reality that, that when you're drowning, um, your instinct is to, you know, push under anything you can get your hands on. And then I mean, maybe after once you're on dry land, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, that was wrong. But in that moment that I, you know, didn't have a job and didn't know what I was going to do and felt like I was fighting for my life. It was like, yeah, great. I'll tell what I'll say whatever you want me to say. And why, why did you change your mind? What made you resist that? And you have a very dramatic story of resisting it. And maybe tell that story and then say when you decided you couldn't do that any longer. Yeah, I mean, the, the story kind of was the breaking point. Basically, what happened was I thought, well, let me at least, you know, as I was kind of becoming aware that, like, this is wrong, I think I should stop doing this. That's kind of out of the bag because there's so much that I've written online that kind of identifies me that way. But I thought, let me just try to at least, you know, nip this in the bud now. Um, and so just to see what would happen, just to see if they would allow me this agency. I was in the middle of a publishing process with a place that I really wanted to get published. And it was a place that was going to pay me, which is pretty rare um, in literary publishing. So I, I was going to get, you know, actual money for like 500 words. I couldn't believe it. And um, they'd already sent me the page proofs. We were very late in the process. And it was not a prison essay. It was an essay about me and my dad walking down a beach after I came home. So it mentions, you know, after I came home from prison, dot, dot, dot. But it doesn't take place in prison. It's not about prison. Um, it's about me and my dad reconnecting and uh, sent me the page proofs. It was supposed to come out like later that week, like that Sunday. And I get an email from the editor and they said, hey, um, the managing editor just wants me to confirm with you that uh, that your offense was nonviolent because I hadn't given that up front like I normally do. Because I'm like, let's see what happens. And I said, well, uh, I don't see how that's relevant. I like, um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to confirm that. I mean, I, I, I am, but I was like, I'm not going to confirm that for, for him. Um, why is that necessary? And she said, oh, well, it's, it's not a big deal. Like, it's just a word is fact-checking. I said, well, how could that be fact-checking if the essay is not about prison or I'm not claiming, like, how, how does that, that's not materially relevant to anything in the piece. So how could that be, how could this have to do with fact-checking? And then she just ignored me. She just never wrote back. Piece never came out. Emailed her multiple times. You owe me a kill fee. <laughs> All that stuff. Um, called the office a couple times. And they just ignored me and they just spiked the piece. And 
And so that was the big turning point for me was, was, you know, it's one thing that it had helped me, but the fact that if I wasn't willing to do it, I was denied entry completely. That, that really made me sit up and pay attention and say, okay, this is, this is a real problem. If this is my, if, if this is, if this is required, if this is a prerequisite to even get my foot in the door, then this is something I don't want to be a part of, or at the very least venues that are going to treat me this way are not things I want to be a part of. And that's the exact situation I found myself back in with that job interview. It's like, yeah, yeah. great organization, but like, you're clearly not the right one for me if, if we're even having this conversation. But yeah, it's a good example though of another barrier, another door that we have to kick in, because it's just outrageous. And I, I think your essay goes into this a bit, but I think it's outrageous when we think that there's a fine line between violence and nonviolence. I mean, you know, I, I'll go back to my slave owner who was kind and treated everybody well, never lifted a hand against anyone, but he owned other human beings. And that system was absolutely built on a absolute, you know, unimaginably huge structure of violence, but he wasn't violent. So, or was he? And of course, you and I today would say he was. But then the question becomes, you know, um, some guy on the west side of Chicago gets into a beef about a drug deal and, and kills another guy. He committed violence and he goes to Stateville for life. And Purdue Pharma killed millions of people. And they got slapped on the wrist. So where's the where's that neat line that we'd all feel more comfortable if we knew we're sitting here on our couch, the nonviolent ones or the non-law-breaking ones or the, you know, but is it true? I mean, how could it possibly be true if this is the world that we live in? Yeah. I mean, I think it's fascinating that it's so easy to forget because these, these systems are so embedded. Um, but I, I mentioned in one of these essays that like, Unless we forget, people just made all this up. You know, like crime is not, crime has no objective reality. Somebody decided they were going to create three, what is it, 3,000 felonies, um, you know, 8,000, 14, however many barriers to, to uh, you know, employment or, or, or services in, in the state of Illinois alone for people that have been incarcerated. This is all, I'm not saying it's arbitrary, but somebody did make it up. And so, yeah, the line between violence and nonviolence, there are offenses on the books that would shock people that they're classified as nonviolent um, and vice versa. Um, but at the very least, we have to acknowledge that you could let, you know, statistically, you could let every single nonviolent offender in the United States of America out today and we would still have per capita the highest incarceration rate in the country. And nobody in the wants world. To, in the world. Yeah. And nobody wants to talk about that because, because then they have to admit that, like, that's not the solution. Right. Um, but yes, I, I think that that's what's been so demoralizing about researching this next piece is seeing that the way that the same way that the carceral system offloads responsibility um, for state violence onto individuals and points the finger there and gets everyone else around that person to do the same. Similarly, corporations in the same way when it comes to racial violence, when it comes to environmental degradation, when it comes to all these other forms of, of violence. Uh, have found these ways, like like coining the word carbon footprint, like making right. us all feel individually bad, to, to make sure we're all policing each other and taking photos of each other's lawns, or each other's green lawns to water shame each other, while this kind of larger violence, as you say, is happening in the background. Yeah. You know, it, I don't know if you talk about this, but um, and you talked about it a minute ago, about slave patrols leading to, you know, um, lynching leading to uh, carceral state and so on. Um but I don't know if you've ever seen the film Racially Charged by Robert Greenwald. It's a really brilliant film, and it's it traces 
It, the subtitle is America's Misdemeanor Problem. Hmm. And he traces misdemeanor law to slavery, to the afterlife of slavery. And there's absolutely, it's so well done that you see the absolute solid chain link between curfew, jaywalking, and on and on and on, and trying to manage a group of recently freed enslaved workers. And it was effective in the South. It became a national you know, um, obsession. So what we saw in, in Memphis is an example, but and it's true in Minnesota, it's true everywhere, that these misdemeanor laws are meant to control and they lead to mayhem and murder and mass incarceration. They're all part of it. But I think it's really important that people understand that this, you say it's arbitrary. Yes, somebody did it, but it actually is illogical mm -hmm. in, in major ways. And we can't just chip away at it. We have to have a, a large analysis and a, and a large strategy. You know, the other thing that for those of us who've worked with people incarcerated, nobody's an angel. And you make that point again and again. But most of us don't live, you know, under harsh 24-hour surveillance and control of our bodies in every every realm uh, because of the worst thing we ever did. But some people do. And the people that I teach, and I don't know, I think I told you that Rachel and I are teaching together now. Mm -hmm. So she took her first trip to the to the um to the classroom with me on Tuesday. And she came back, she came out of that experience. And the way she described it, she said it was like visiting Kathy or David, who are family members. And she said, I just walk out of there and I feel, first of all, I feel stricken that I can walk out and they can't. And secondly, I feel who's gaining from this. These are not only, it's not just some liberal idea, these are human beings. These are three-dimensional creatures once you spend time with them, just like you. They have bodies and minds and spirits and souls. I remember being so angry at Governor Cuomo when he went and met with Judy Clark in prison, and he came out and said, I looked deeply into her eyes and I saw that she has a soul. I'm like, motherfucker, look in anybody's eyes, you know? Yeah. And and by the way, you're no saint, you know? And of course, yeah. a few years later, <laughs> out, know, yeah. he was called the case. But but I think that it's really important that you do both things. You you do a really good job of pointing the the lens back at us and saying, what makes you so good? And and making us kind of think hard about some of the things that we either were lucky, you call it moral luck, or or that we just we're in, in the right place at the right time as opposed to being in the wrong place. You know, spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks working with a couple of kids who were, were charged with felony murder. They were with their cousin doing a stupid thing. And like your mom driving her car drunk. Um, but they, they were there and they were technically guilty. And they're willing to even own up to the guilt. And yet... There's more to them than that. And you walk out of these classrooms and you feel like, what, what are we doing? What is the state of Illinois doing to further anything by having this many people caged? Um, and, and the other thing Rachel said that I thought was great, because I never thought of this. She said, we just had the best three hours as teachers and as students. And we built a, a writing community. We're teaching memoir. And um, we were really in the early stages of building a, writing, uh, building a writing community. 
And she said, you know what else I don't understand? Why aren't those guys in classes eight hours a day? Hmm. Why, why is this a special thing once a week for three hours? Why is education and art not what their lives are about? Well, that wouldn't suit the kind of, the kind of popular you know, obsession with mistake equals crime equals punishment equals the cage. And the cage has to be painful. Not, it's not just, and that's what she said. She said, I mean, you've removed them from their families, from their loved ones. Isn't that enough? No, there's much more going on. Humiliation, degradation, bad food, you know, and on and on. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, getting back to your point about the different forms that violence takes, you know, individually and institutionally, yeah, to me, that's the that's the most ironic one is that, you know, I, I think even pretty hardcore people on the right at this point, you know, not now even they want in on the act of this right on crime, you know, everybody now it's in vogue to, to talk about how um, the mass incarceration you know system isn't working. Although, I mean, I think that's obviously I nitpick with that. It's totally working exactly how it was designed. It's just bad. Um, it's not broken. It's just awful, uh, which I think is an important difference because um, it is working. It is operating exactly how it was designed. But I think we're all on the same, a lot of folks are on the same page about the fact that, you know, recidivism goes down, you know, a million fold when you educate people, you know, all these different forms of support that we all know. And it's even, and the thing that's sadder to me is it's even cheaper for taxpayers. And so to me, the, the hardest thing, the thing that is so sad, frankly, is that, you know, when you give taxpayers a choice and say, I, I, I will lower your tax bill and, and improve the lives of people, um, They'll, they'll, they won't, they won't recidivate. They won't, we'll, we'll, we'll reduce the number of, of people harmed by crime and we'll improve the lives of people who have committed harm. People are literally, you know, looking that scenario in the eye and saying, no, 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 keep my bill where it is. I'll pay more to watch people suffer. I'll pay more mm. to ruin lives, to, um, to be punitive, to hurt other people. And again, it's like, look, you can point the finger at me all day and talk about all the bad things I've done. I have never knowingly and, and willingly said, I'll, I'll pay out of pocket to make your life worse, to make your outcomes worse, to create more, more crime victims, because it's more important to me to hurt you than to do the right thing. And, um, you know, when I think of when you, you asked about, you know, can, how can literature help? Th those are the type of really deep things that I despair about, because that is... That is hate, and that is violence on a really deep level. But you're a writer. You're an artist. That whole last thing you just said, I, I suddenly saw a short story. Because I think if you if people had to say it to themselves up front, I will pay out of pocket to torture another person and watch them suffer. I think people would say, I'm not that guy. I mean, you're pointing out the ways in which we are that guy. But I think you should write a short story. So that's um, I'm putting that in your back pocket as a possibility. Um, I I guess I want to ask you one more thing. This is a, a I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I've enjoyed reading your work, and I hope everyone will. But um, this is a seminar on freedom, and one of the things we talk about 
both in a social sense and in an individual sense, is what is freedom? So maybe just reflect for a word, uh, uh, for a moment on on the word freedom, a contested, um, you know, I often point out the people that the Civil War was fought for freedom, the freedom of enslaved people on the one hand, and the freedom to own people on the other hand. And it was couched in those terms, make no mistake, one side wasn't for freedom and the other for tyranny. Both sides were for freedom, and they defined freedom dramatically differently. But that was the clash, and I think it's still a clash. But I'm interested in your your sense of uh, just the word, just riffing on the word. You know, I the, the thing that comes to mind, and this is a, you know, it's a little example, but I think um, obviously there's so many ways to to define that and to think about, you know, autonomy, you know, bodily autonomy, spiritual autonomy. But the thing that comes to mind, just because of, of these stories we've been talking about so far, is... Um, when I first moved down here to Hyde Park, I was in this little sublet when I was in grad school. I was you know, renting a, a room in, in some guy's house. And um, I remember at some point, he he was doing it because he really needed the money. And so at some point, he, he was playing with the idea of renting out another, like renting out the living room, basically. He didn't have any more bedrooms. So he thought, well, whatever, I'll, maybe somebody will pay me to crash on the couch. And he put up an ad, and the guy that answered the ad uh, was black. This guy and, and the, the the homeowner landlord guy was was uh, he's Middle Eastern, and he we were talking about it one day. And he was talking about how he was trying to get somebody in there, and he made this joke, but he wasn't you know obviously actually kidding about how he had uh, told the guy that he needed his like ID and all his paperwork because he wanted the guy to think he was running a background check on him because he was black and so he was almost certainly a criminal and so. He'd, he'd made sure to ask him that to scare the guy away so that he can, uh, you know, clear out his inbox for for uh, any, any white people that might want to rent the room. And I, I and I and I remember uh, laughing with him about it because I was living there and I didn't have anywhere else to live and I didn't have a job and I it was cheap and I was afraid that if I pissed him off or said something he was going to throw me out or was going to come into this whole thing. And I was going to throw it, throw it into his face to say, well, guess what? You know, I, I you know, irony of all ironies, you're, you're type guys. I'm an actual felon. You're living with an actual convicted felon. Little do you know, because you didn't bother to check because I'm a white guy, but I, you're actually living with a felon already. Yeah. Can you believe it? So, but I couldn't have that conversation because I needed, I needed the apartment. And, and I, and I felt, you know, I've been out of prison for years by the time that happened. That was one of the most powerless situations I feel like I've ever been in, even though I wasn't physically restrained, even though they didn't have the chains around my waist yeah. like they used to when I was locked up. The fact that I couldn't act my values, I couldn't speak my mind, I couldn't walk away because I didn't feel like I could afford to. And I feel like he had the, the power in that situation. Um, that really hurt. And so to me, what freedom has been looking like lately is being able to say, honestly, like, fuck off and walk away. Like I was able to do with that hiring situation because I don't need the money. I've got a job. Right. Thank God I've been figuring it out. You know, I, I, I you know, I, I, I save a lot for a rainy day precisely because when I'm in these situations where I have, I'm, I'm being put in a position to have to compromise my values and my, my own integrity, I want to be able to say no and not have to worry about uh, the repercussions for that. And so that's been huge for me is, is, is getting the, the autonomy to, to say, to say no, to say, I don't want to be in this situation, to say, I'm not going to tell you when somebody asks me a question, I don't want to answer. 
um, you know, going all the way back to, to the essay we started the, the, this this conversation with, you know, that that to me is, I mean, it sounds really negative, but like the power of no um, yeah. and the power of like, I don't want to and the power of none of your business um, it's great. is a really strong form of freedom for me. Yeah, it's a great example. And it makes me think of a book I read last couple months ago by a Senegalese author, um, wrote in French, won a bunch of awards, uh, translated into English, called At Night All Blood is Black. Mm. And it's about a Senegalese mercenary soldier in World War I in the trench warfare in Europe. But in the middle of the novel, the, the narrator says, um, the good thing is I'm free to think whatever I want to think. And what I think is that they don't want me to think. <laughs> that, that captures something about yeah. unfreedom too. They don't want you to think. They don't want you to be you. Yeah. Um, you have to conform to, you know, it's kind of wild. And it, it, it sets me off thinking of all kinds of implications for schools and education. You know, we, we claim to live in a democracy, in a free society. And the schools we have and the institutions we have, the prisons we have, tell us something quite different about ourselves. And I think we have to we have to struggle hard to get out of the place we're in and unleash our imaginations toward what freedom could look like, even what policing could look like under freedom, even you know, in a free and democratic society. Yeah, that's our challenge. Michael, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, spending an hour with you. I urge people to read your writing and to, I encourage you to keep writing and definitely write that short story, <laughs> uh, which, which I know you're not a fiction writer exactly, but why not? You know, writers are writers. Anyway, thanks very much. Thanks so much. It was awesome, Bill. Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this exact moment on the clock of the universe. Let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's get busy in projects to reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw. And thanks to Bernadine Dorn for being co-host today. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life the pursuit of compassion. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.